Well, we are continuing our journey through the book of Genesis. Nearing the end, we're, we're nearing the end. It's been, of course, intermittent. It hasn't been every week, and so we've taken quite some time to travel through this, this book. But this morning we'll be in chapters 44 and the first part of 45. On our way home last week, Tanya told me, she said, why did you stop? Let's just get the whole story. <laughs> we were right at the good part, right at the exciting part. And it is. Uh, sometimes we, we want to just keep plugging at it and, and hearing what's next. It's very suspenseful when we let off uh, where we did. Because we know what's coming. We, we all know the story. We've all read this many times. But it's, it's, it's that, that suspense that gets a hold of us. And we want to just find out what's going on here. Well, last Lord's Day, we looked at the situation within Israel's household and how the famine had forced him to send 10 of his sons to Egypt to buy food. As providence would have it, Joseph, the brother that they had sold into slavery, was now in charge of all the food. Although he had recognized his brothers right away, they did not recognize him. And so, taking advantage of his ambiguity, he used the situation to test their characters. To test their character, their, their nature. We left off, they had finally convinced their father to let them take Benjamin with them on this next food run to Egypt. Because they knew they couldn't go back without him. And they needed the food for the survival of their families. And so we, we saw where rather than lock them all up into prison again, he, he brought them to his house and he, and he fed them. There were several things that we, we noticed that kind of astonished the brothers. Uh, first of all, they were all seated in, in the perfect order of, from the oldest to the youngest. And that, they were kind of wondering, you know, how did these Egyptians know that? That would be a little red flag for me. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> you called us spies. <laughs> and, but then, also Benjamin was given a, a whole lot more portions of food than the brothers were given. But it, it didn't seem to affect them. So, first off, Joseph tested their honesty by demanding they bring Benjamin back. And now, he's testing their jealousy uh, with the, the portions, the difference in the portions of food. And finally, he's going to test their, he's going to give them one final test. Uh, he's going to test their loyalty to their father and to their brother. And we will see that in our passage here this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, this account that you have given us in your word, this historic narrative, Father, uh, we see that we can learn things from it. Uh, we can uh, learn things to avoid. We can uh, become better Christians by learning from this. But Father, more, most importantly, we ask that you would help us to see the gospel in this Old Testament narrative, Father. That we would be pointed to Christ and that seeing Christ, he would become altogether lovely to us. We ask in his holy name. Amen. 
Well, we have the one final test coming up. The test of loyalty. And what does Joseph do for this test? Now, they had just finished their meal. Uh, they had a good night's sleep. And first thing in the morning, the brothers get up and they take off with their food, right? Well, Joseph had a plan. He told his steward, look, I want you to put their money back, just like you did before. And I want you to take this silver cup, and I want you to put it in the sack of the youngest. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm, just, I'm a slow learner. But I think if I was one of the brothers, before we even left, I had to check my sack. Because remember what happened last time. I would have, wait a minute, you guys remember what happened last time? Let's just go ahead and let's go ahead and before we leave, let's make sure the guy kept the money that he was supposed to keep. But for whatever reason they didn't do this. They were in a hurry. They were eager to get home. Maybe they were eager to get away from Egypt. Uh, maybe they were excited by the, the kindness of this Egyptian ruler. They they had Benjamin with them. They had Simeon back. They were gonna go home and and reunite Benjamin and Simeon with their father. And so we are told the first thing in the morning, they got up, they had their, the, the grain was already loaded for them, and they take off. But they don't get very far, do they? Because they just get out of town, and we're told that... Joseph Stewart, probably the head of his house, probably the, the head of the, you know, probably the one that protected his house, the run, ran the things and the everyday things in his house, he, he caught up with them. And I, I would imagine he wasn't going by himself, okay? I'm imagining he had a troop of soldiers with him because they caught up to the brothers, probably in chariots or horseback, and Notice the question, why have you repaid evil for good? What had this Egyptian ruler done for them? One, he had given them their brother back. He had let them purchase grain for their families. He had fed them a meal and given them accommodations for the night. You can imagine their surprise. What, what are you talking about? Notice, they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. And notice their brash statement. Where have we heard this statement before? The one who you find this with will die. Where have we heard that before? Their dad. Remember Jacob and Laban? When Laban accused him of stealing the household gods? He said, whoever has them will die. Whoever you find them with will die. And so they make this same brash statement. That he will die and the rest of us will become your slaves. And the steward says, no, that's not. That's not necessary. Just the one who has the cup will be a slave. And so there was a search made speedily 
once again, in the order of their age, from the oldest to the youngest. And we know the story, okay? They would have probably been worried as soon as they saw Reuben's sack because, one, his money was in there. And then they start going and all their money is in there. And then they get to Benjamin and there's the silver cup. What did these brothers do? Well, a typical Hebrew sign of consternation. They tore their clothes. They loaded their bags and they turned back to the city to face the music. Why is this important? Why is that act very important? This is the exact time and place where they could have abandoned Benjamin and went on their way. Just like they had abandoned Joseph when they threw him in the pit and then changed their mind and and, and hauled him out of the pit and sold him into slavery. They abandoned him. This here is the moment of the test. Will they abandon him or will they not? And of course, to the very man, they load their sacks back up, their bags of grain, and they turn around. Rather than abandoning Benjamin, they all head back to face the music. One Bible commentator writes, The brothers had come to life's greatest crossroads. What would they do with Benjamin? Would they compound their wickedness and toss him to the wolves as once they had sloughed off Joseph? Or would they take their stand for Benjamin? Without a moment's hesitation, the stricken men cast in their lot with Benjamin and prepared to share whatever fate was in store for him. Little did they know it, but that action, they had turned the tide. End quote. They decided not to abandon their brother. This is a complete change of heart for these men, a complete change of character. Just a few chapters ago, in chapter 37, we see these calloused, hateful, jealous men sell their brother into slavery. First, they, they plan to kill him. And then they decide, no. We'll listen to Reuben and we'll just throw him in a pit and let him die. You know, he would die probably in a couple of weeks of starvation, probably sooner than that with lack of water. And then Judah comes up with this idea when they see this caravan traveling, this, these, these traders, these merchants. Hey, we shouldn't kill him. He's our own flesh and blood. Let's, let's get some money out of it. And so they sell him into slavery. These same men now turn around and head back into town to face the music for what apparently Benjamin had done. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, verse 14, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Notice how Judah is mentioned first. This is significant now. This will be significant. We'll see more of this significance at the end of this chapter, at the end of this book. He was very clearly, he had very clearly assumed the role of leader and spokesman to the brothers, for the brothers. Prostrating themselves before Joseph was no longer 
a show of respect and, and deference. Here, it was a, an act begging for mercy. They didn't just bow before him. It says they, they probably were face down in the dirt on the ground, showing a sign of complete surrender. They were groveling in the dirt, pleading for mercy from this offended Egyptian ruler. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you had done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now, what, what is divination? It's a cultic kind of magical process, pro, you know, um, where they could... Uh, what do we have modern equivalents? Astrology, Right? We can know things by the signs, right? Well, I would submit to you, Joseph's faith in and faithfulness to the God of his fathers would have prevented him from actually practicing the cultic ritual of divination. But as part of his charade, now, I mean, you, you know he's play acting here. They don't know who he is. And so he's playing the part. In other words, don't you guys know that supernaturally we figured out how this crime was committed, right? Why would you guys take this when you know we can practice these things? We can find out. Well, I don't know what stock the brothers put in magic or divination. But what could they do? I mean, Benjamin had been caught red-handed. Even though Benjamin had no idea he did this, he was caught with the merchandise. They could not deny that fact. Now, they had no idea that he was innocent and that they were innocent. All they knew was he was caught and he was their responsibility. Judah does not try to argue their innocence but rather bargains for their lives. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or, or how can we clear ourselves? Now he's arguing their innocence, but he's begging for their lives. But he's also saying, Look, there's no way we can prove that he didn't do this. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup was found. Now the word servants there probably should be translated slaves. Because that would have been the punishment if they weren't killed outright. They would have been made slaves. Bruce uh, Watke in his commentary on Genesis suggests that Judah is not referring to the silver cup incident when he admits their guilt. But he's saying, God has found out our guilt. He's talking about the guilt of what the brothers had done to Joseph. Every time they've had trouble in Egypt, the brothers have rehearsed that event, saying that is why this is happening. God is punishing us now for what we did then. And that's what Judah is saying here. God has found out our guilt. Joseph gives the brothers one more chance to abandon Benjamin and save their own hides. 
Notice what he says in verse 17. Far be it from me that I should do so. What's he talking about? That I should make all of you my slaves. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now they have their their chance. This Egyptian rulers just let them go. Matter of fact, he tells them, go in peace. You're free to go. This is their last chance. They they can abandon their brother Benjamin right here and right now and save their own hides. Then we see something amazing. The very one, Judah, who had suggested that the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, now attempts to intercede for Benjamin. Remember the, the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. It had been a, a jealous relationship. Joseph was the favorite of his father, Jacob. Jacob had lavished on Joseph gifts that, that he had not lavished on his brothers. Uh, he used Jacob, I mean Joseph, to be a spy for his brothers. Go bring me back a report. And they hated him for it. They couldn't even look at him without hating him. It says we learned that they could not even interact with him in a favorable sense because they hated him. They despised him. They were jealous of him. And, and since Joseph had been gone out of the picture, who had taken the place? Benjamin had taken his place. He was now Jacob's favorite son. Why? Because he was the only son Jacob had left from his favorite wife, Rachel. And so now the brothers have a a whole new, and and we're not given any details of how Jacob had had shown favoritism to Benjamin. We just know he had. We saw that in the first trip to Egypt when he wouldn't let Benjamin go. So these brothers have the opportunity here to rid themselves, not of one of Rachel's sons, but both of them. And, And Judah steps up and, and, and attempts to intercede for his youngest brother and, as we'll see, for his father as well. Judah recounts to Joseph how he, Joseph, had demanded that the brothers bring ben- Benjamin with them. Okay, Look, this is your fault. <laughs> you told us to bring him. I don't, I'm sure that's not what his attitude was. Okay? But he, he's recounting the whole story. You told us to bring him with us. Otherwise, you said we would not see your face unless he was with us. He tells Jacob, uh, he tells Joseph about Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, and her two sons, one of which they presume is dead, and, and Benjamin here. And how if Benjamin doesn't go back, That would kill Jacob, their father, with grief. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. He says, Look, I I told Dad I would bring him back. And so if I can't bring him back, I don't want to go back. Make me your slave. And let the boy go. I mean, he was caught with it, right? He's red-handed. He, uh, apparently he's guilty. 
But you're not just punishing him. You're punishing our father. Don't do that. Let, let me be your slave. Okay? Yeah. Dad could probably care less if I come home. But the boy, is his very life is tied up in the boy. Don't, don't, don't keep Benjamin. The brothers have had a change of heart. Philip Eveson writes, There was clearly no longer any jealousy or bad spirit in the brothers. The experience had brought them to confess the guilt of their past action and to show a repentant attitude by this real concern for their father and brother. They had at least, at last, excuse me, come to terms with the special affection that their father had for his wife Rachel and her two sons. Judah, the one who had callously suggested the idea of selling Joseph into Egypt as a slave, was now prepared to receive the punishment of slavery in the place of Rachel's son rather than see his poor father die of a broken heart. End quote. Here we see also Judah's intercession take a prophetic turn and gives us a glimpse into the future. Eveson continues, he says, For the first time we see Judah directing us to the truth concerning the promised seed. He offered himself as a substitute for his brother, Jesus Christ, who is from the family line of Judah, offered himself as the perfect substitute in order to release his brothers from slavery to sin and Satan. End quote. And so we see this, this, this small act of intercession pointing forward to the great act of intercession, which would make Judah what we call in typology, right? A, a type of Christ or a type pointing us to Christ. Although Judah making intercession for his youngest brother is a type of Christ, there are also several glaring differences. Whereas Judah intercedes for one, Christ intercedes for many. Judah's intercession, though noble, turned out to be unnecessary because Joseph had no intention of keeping any of the brothers as slaves. Christ's intercession is absolutely necessary because we are all enslaved to sin. Not only is it necessary, but Christ's intersection is absolutely 100% effective. With Judah, the guilty intercedes for the innocent. With Christ, the innocent intercedes for the guilty. Jesus, during his great high priestly prayer, which we rightly call the Lord's Prayer, not the model prayer, but his actual prayer, he interceded for his disciples, but not just for his disciples. He intercedes for us in that prayer. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's praying for their protection and, and our protection, right? Christ says, they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's praying. He's interceding for our sanctification. 
Now, how do I know it's for us as well? He continues, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for everybody that believes in him through the word of God, through the testimony that the disciples had and that they have given to us in God's word. That's intercession. How about Christ's intercession on the cross when he was accomplishing the Father's very will and dying in the place of sinners? What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody. Well, I can't. I don't personally know anybody, and maybe, maybe I don't know you as as well as I should. If you could do that, but I, I don't think I could do that. I couldn't ask God to forgive somebody. I don't think. I, I hope I could. While they're in the midst of killing me, it would be hard for me to think, God, forgive them. I'd be, God, save me, help me. <laughs> but that's intercession. That's love. That is devotion to the Father's will. And, and by the grace of God, maybe we all could be that. We all could do that. Because it's only by the grace of God that we could do that. But it, Christ's intercession wasn't just when he was here on this earth. It wasn't just when he was in anguish on the cross. We read in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Judah's intercession was short-lived. Christ's intercession will last until the culmination of world history. And maybe beyond. Though I don't know what, what he would need to intercede for us after we're glorified, right? We're there. We're perfect. And so we see in Judah's intercession here a type of Christ. And we see that it was really effective. Because when we start chapter 45, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't take it any longer. He couldn't control himself. I mean, this, this intercession that Judah made uh, just tore him down. He knew right then and there that these, these were changed men. And he couldn't for another second keep his identity hidden from them. He wanted so much to, to just hug their necks, as we will see. So he makes everyone go out. All of his, all of his uh, Egyptian servants, except for the brothers. He's there alone now with his brothers. And he said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Bet you could have heard the noise of 11 chins bouncing off their chest. <laughs> And, and, and it appears from the text that they're kind of frozen in fear. And they have, well, they have every right to be. Now this explanation, I am Joseph, this would explain a lot. Okay, that explains how he knew how old we were and the order of birth and, 
you know, that explains him, you know, referencing our God and, and things like that. But they were dismayed at his presence. They were afraid. I mean, human nature, you know, we like to get even with people, right? We like to make things right in our, in our minds, you know. You do something to me and I get a chance to do it back or, or worse. That's human nature, right? So naturally, these men are afraid. If this is true, if he really is Joseph, the only one there that didn't really have to be that afraid was Benjamin. Because the rest were guilty. Benjamin was a toddler, you know, a very young kid when, when Joseph had been sold into slavery. He was the only one there that was innocent as far as that's concerned. But these brothers, they just stand there frozen with fear. So Joseph, he, he continues, come near to me, please. And they came near. They're still obeying this man. He's still a ruler. He may be Joseph. He may not be. We're going to find out. But he's still in charge. I wonder if any of them thought about the, the, the dreams that he had told, told them years and years ago. Shall we bow down to you? And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph tells him again who he is. He's saying, look, I am Joseph. Okay, and I can prove it because I know what you did to me. <laughs> he reminds them what they had done. They had sold him into slavery. And who else would knew that? Benjamin didn't even know that. Those ten brothers and Joseph were the only ones in their family that knew that. So that proves to them that he is who he says he is. But what Joseph says next is truly amazing. This just, this is like the grace of God coming through the life of a man. He said, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to prepare, to preserve life. Wow, what a theological statement that young man made, did he? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. For the famine has been in the land two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. So it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. Don't, don't hate yourselves. Don't be angry with yourselves. You know, I've forgiven you. You forgive yourselves. And know this, it was God. God is in control. God is sovereign. He's the one that did this. And he did it for your sake. Wow, that, that's, that's another thing that's really hard for us in human nature. This shows Joseph's godly character. This shows that he didn't uh, 
assimilate into the culture of Egypt. Uh, you, you remember who he's married to? He's married to the daughter of a cult priest. And yet he remains faithful to God. He, he names his, his sons Hebrew names. He does not convert over to the Egyptian idolatrous religions. He doesn't take on their ways, except for maybe, you know, diet and, and whatnot. <coughs> Remember, the Israel didn't get dietary restrictions until Exodus, right? And he shows his faith in God by, by telling his brothers, God did this, and God did this for you. Isn't that what we tell people about Christ? God did this. You know, when a person gets saved, when a person is saved, I, I, I don't like the term, get saved. When a person is saved, who are they saved from? You know, people will say, well, they're saved from the devil. No, they're saved from God. It's not the devil's wrath that punishes people in hell. It's God's wrath that punishes people in hell. And when they are saved, they're not only saved from God, they're saved by God. Because it's only God who can save the lost. And they're saved for God. So you see, in all this, God is central. God is the object. He is the object of worship. He is God. So we should proclaim, just like Joseph does, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's the story of the cross. Joseph did next what he had wanted to do from the very moment Benjamin arrived. Remember when he first saw Benjamin? He had to leave the room and, and weep. Remember that? He's been wanting to do this now since he first saw Benjamin in Egypt. He fell on his neck and he wept. And he kissed his brother. And Benjamin wept on his neck. They finally had this tearful, joyful reunion. Then Joseph, showing that he harbored no ill will toward his brothers, showed them the same affection that he had showed his brother Benjamin. This time, it wasn't different. This time it was the same. It says he, he kissed each of his brothers and wept on their necks. And they in turn did likewise with him. You know, Peter in the New Testament tells us the story of Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What lawless, wicked, sinful men meant for evil, God meant for good. Because it's only through the sacrifice of Christ that lawless sinners can be made whole. That lawless sinners can come to the saving knowledge of the Lord. That we can be forgiven and one day we can be in the very presence of a thrice holy God through the blood of Christ in which we will in a few minutes consider it more carefully when we partake of the Lord's Supper. In our passage today we have seen a complete turnaround in the ten older brothers. They went from being jealous, rough, hateful, men, vengeful men to become respectful respectful and caring about their father respectful and caring about their youngest brother to the point where they all are willing to face the music for what supposedly Benjamin had done they have become honest, respectable and compassionate we have seen that the forgiving nature of Joseph is something that we can learn, right? It's not something that we can learn. It's something we must do. What does Christ tell us? Forgive as you have been forgiven. If you don't have a forgiving spirit about you, there's a good chance you don't know the, forgiving, the forgiveness of God in Christ. Because God forgave us in Christ, we are to be forgiving. Joseph had every reason to be angry with his brothers for what they did. He had been sold as a slave. And then he had been imprisoned wrongly for many years. All because of his brothers. And yet he was forgiving. And, uh, and over all of this, Joseph not only sees the hand of God, but testifies to the providence and the power of God. God did this, brothers, not you. Dear ones, I, I hope and pray that you have seen the glories in the gospel of today's passage. The glory that is in Christ. And having seen, you are now even more desirous to partake of the Lord's Supper today. I invite and encourage each one here today with the words of the psalmist. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. If you don't know Christ as Savior, flee to Him today. Take refuge in the only one who can save you. Let's pray. Holy Father, 
We thank you for giving us your word. You've written your law in our hearts and and, and in our minds. We know that there's something out there. We can look in your creation and we can see that there's something bigger than me. And we can even imagine different things that we can call God. But Father, we can't know you except through your special revelation of your word. Have you, as you have revealed yourself to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for being such a magnificent God. Such a compassionate and caring God. Such a holy God. We thank you for Christ, for his sacrifice, through which he has brought many sons and daughters to you, Father. And we can truly cry out, Abba, Father. We ask that you would bless the rest of this service for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You'd stand and sing with me hymn 303.